So back to cutting room floor. Uh, this Sunday you talked about sort of this request for the king, but you also mentioned that like there were allusions to maybe God wanting a king, mm-hmm. and you have these like two different layers yeah. of like an inappropriate request, and yet like this sort of built-in assumption that a king would come. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think what I'm what we're kind of tapping into a little bit here and we alluded a little bit to on Sunday is that you have some passages in the old Testament that explicitly point to God being Israel's King. Mm. Like God is King. He's the ruler. And we can talk about some of those passages. And then you have other passages that are this layer of like this need for a coming King to help save Israel. Mm. And so sometimes there's like a little bit of tension or conflict in the old Testament as to like what exactly or who exactly is to be, Israel's king? Is it to be Yahweh himself or is there like this expected king Mm. to come? And then kind of right in the middle of that is our passage in 1 Samuel 8 where Israel and really the elders of Israel come to Samuel and they're asking, you know, give us a king like the other nations. And Samuel understands and perceives that request to essentially be evil. And there's this kind of moment here where we're wondering, okay, so how are we to think then about this request or this desire for Israel to have a king. Because again, you have one hand, God is to be Israel's king. And then there's these other sort of kind of prophetic or prophecies looking to this coming day when there would be a king in Israel. Mm -hmm. And then there's right even more, there's the passage in the Torah that I mentioned Deuteronomy talking about the requirements for when Israel would have a king. And so what I wanted to do was just look at, first off, some of these, perhaps we can just call them like pro-God as king passages. And highlight a couple of those and then throughout the old testament and then kind of highlighting the pro like human need for like mm. a human king and then maybe talk about okay so how are we to think about these kind of two strands or two rivers if you will okay. kind of merging together uh in hope in what will end up being jesus himself mm. kind of giving the end a little bit away yeah, but man, maybe <laughs> maybe to spoiler start, alert. yeah exactly right <laughs> but just to maybe start back from the very beginning you know genesis chapter one it really depicts in many ways God being this like royal authority, this royal king. Okay. So 10 times in Genesis 1, God speaks and God said. And most commentators, scholars point out this idea that this is like God's authority in this kingly kind of way being depicted in the creation account. God is the one who is sovereign, who's ruler, who's in charge of all these things. And it's just by the spoken decree of his very words, creation comes uh, into existence. When you come then to like the Exodus story, after Israel crosses the Red Sea, you have the first explicit mention of kind of kingly action being associated with Yahweh himself. Mm. And so you have the song of the sea, as it's often called, the song of Moses after they cross the Red Sea. One of the last lines in that song in Exodus 15, verse 18, the text says, the Lord will reign or rule forever and ever. Kind of Mm. just after God has defeated the enemy Egyptians in the Red Sea, you have this first clear explicit reference to God being the one who reigns or rules as king in this moment of salvation and deliverance. Mm. So you have those kind of, those are two passages there. Psalm 24 would be kind of another kind of sample from the Psalms talking about God being this king of glory. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle. Mm. And it's this kind of really this praise song depicting Yahweh as Israel's king, the king of glory. And there's various other passages we we could go to, but just those are just a couple handful just to kind of start us off thinking about pro Yahweh as Israel's king in that sort of bucket, if you will. Now, on the other hand, you have, again, these aren't really to be in that much intention, but just, you know, for simplicity right now. On the other hand, you have these passages that 
kind of look forward to the day of this coming ruler or authority that will defeat evil and essentially be Israel's human king okay. that they long for and need. And so you have some very subtle hints very early in the book of Genesis. Genesis 3.15 often is associated with this, the, the coming prophecy or the coming looking forward to mm. of the one who will crush the, the head. Snake yeah, the snake crusher. Where and does Genesis 1 fit into this? As far right, as like made in the image of yes. God to then rule, rule yes. over creation, right? Because that has kingly for sure overtones. Yes, because what you have in that, thank you for bringing that. But what we have in Genesis one is the image of God. Yeah. That little section in verses twenty six and following yeah. of man and woman be creating in God's image with that verb to rule over yeah. the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. Yeah. That is depicting humanity in kind of codependence and in co-relationship with God mm -hmm. as being kind of God's ambassadors and God's rulers yeah. on behalf of God yeah. on earth. So, so there's it's not almost like this, um, like God is king, but they're sort of exercising his yes. kingly rule. Through, yes, through participation and yeah. in congruence with God himself. So is so, that like a different strand? Well, I would say that's kind of where it's getting at is that that's okay. merging. So it's like the beginning and the end. Yeah, or merging these two. And what ends uh, up happening is you it. kind of have these two strands that kind of. So it sort of starts, starts in Genesis 1 yes. and then leads to Jesus, but it sort of separates a little it bit. It separates a little bit. I think this is probably me just more systematizing some of these texts. I think yeah. they're meant to actually be interwoven more okay. than I'm presenting, yeah. you know, right now. But what you have, Sorry to like throw no, you no, I think that's really, it's, it's really important. <laughs> what you have on the first page of the Bible yeah. is like the shelf space, if you will, okay. of this human divine partnership mm. where kingly authority is being exercised. Mm. And obviously humans, we know the story kind of abandoned that yeah. kind of vocation. And instead of ruling over the fish to the sea, the birds of the air, they are actually ruled by the snake. The snake actually dictates mm -hmm. and tempts them to go away from the path that God has mm. uh, for them. And so this then creates this need or this God. promise in Genesis 3 where God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the women, talking to the snake between your offspring and her offspring. Mm -hmm. And then that famous snake crusher passage where he, you will bruise his heel, but he yeah. will crush your head. And that's looking forward to the day where the seed of the woman would come to defeat evil at its source mm -hmm. uh, in, in context being that of the snake. Yeah. Again, in that 315, Genesis 315 passage, there's no like explicit yeah, king, messiah, ruler language, but you do have this level of victory yeah. and defeat being taken yeah. place, which is associated with throughout the Hebrew Bible, kings and rulers and so on and so yeah. forth. A little more explicit, though, towards the end of the book of Genesis, and I think I mentioned this kind of very briefly on Sunday, is when Jacob, he's the, the, the primary patriarch at this time for God's people. He has his 12 sons. He's in Egypt. He's about to pass away. And in Genesis 49, he offers a series of blessings to his 12 sons. And what's interesting is that to Judah, he gives this kind of blessing where he says in Genesis 49, verse 10, the scepter or the staff shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall obedience be from all the peoples. And what many people point out is that what Jacob is prophesying or kind of blessing his son Judah with is this idea that through Judah's descendants, through from the tribe of Judah, a ruler will, will come from this tribe, that there's going to be this ruler's staff in his hand, tribute is going to come to him, praise is going to come to him, and obedience of the peoples will kind of fall before him. And so this kind of becomes the narrowing, if you will, of this kind of hope for mm. this human king to, yes, come from the seed of the woman, Genesis 3, but now more specifically through the family of Israel, and even more specifically than yeah. that, the tribe of Judah uh, here in Genesis 49. Now, a couple other Small passages kind of point to this as well. In Numbers 24, there's a, a little poem that kind of talks about this coming star that 
and a, a star is kind of a way of talking about a descendant to come hmm. from the line of Jacob. And the je- Numbers twenty four seventeen says, and that scepter, kind of that same language from Genesis forty nine, shall arise out of Israel and shall crush the foreha- forehead of Moab, which is in the context of Numbers twenty four, the enemy that's giving Israel. A difficult time in this story. The point being, though, is Numbers 24 is this poem from the, the Balaam kind of prophecy oracles in that story of the talking donkey of looking forward to this day where there would be this descendant from Jacob, from the tribe of Judah, that would rule and defeat Israel's enemies. And in context, the example here is Moab. But Numbers 24 is this kind of poetic foretelling of this need for a human king, this human descendant to come. Uh, one last one, Deuteronomy 33, kind of towards the end of the Torah itself. Uh, again, there's this small little line tucked away that says in Deuteronomy 33, 7, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people. With your hands contend for him, and be a help against his adversaries. And it goes on to describe that from Judah himself, there would be this ruler that would defeat adversaries or enemies that are mm. hostile uh, towards Israel. Man, it's just like going through this, I'm just like, well, you're doing some digging. Yeah, so it's... Like, yeah. It's like in this narrative, there's these clues yes. or hints along the way. For sure. For yeah. sure. And what, what ends up happening is that, so John Salehammer was the one who kind of pointed this out originally yeah. in his book on the Pentateuch or the first five yeah. books of the Old Testament, is that there's these key poems throughout the Torah yeah. that have these messianic kingly kind of foretellings or foreshadowing. So Genesis 49, Numbers 24, and Deuteronomy 33 okay. are these key poems placed, and Exodus 15, the Song of the Sea, yeah. these key poems that are kind of depicting this need for a royal kingly figure so, so to come. So maybe if I'm reading, like you're reading through, you're in a story, and then this character sort of breaks out in like song. Mm-hmm. And you're like, whoa, what's going on here? Yeah. And then the narrative picks up again. For sure. And then like this character, it's sort of like you're in a musical. Like yes. it breaks out in song. <laughs> totally. And then it happens again. And what you're saying is like, oh, those moments. Mm-hmm where the character breaks out in song yes. are like really important. They're really important. And not, they're poignant. They're not just like, oh, musical interlude. Yes. Yeah. And we've seen this too, even in our study in First Samuel, the poem, yeah. the song of Hannah in the very yeah. beginning has so much embedded within it that it's often more likely the case that even as Hannah is saying that, she might not realize all that she's implying yeah. in that. And there's so much foreshadowing and foretelling that's coming yeah. forth in that kind of poem or song in the beginning of first Samuel. So maybe it's sort of like you have a narrative with these prophetic interludes Mm -hmm. that provide clues for what's to come. For what's to come. Exactly. So what you're saying is like, there's plenty of evidence when you go through that God is meant to be King. Mm -hmm. And then there's these prophetic interludes that if you pay attention to them, you'll start to see, Oh, there's also meant to be this human king. Exactly. And when we get to this text in first Samuel, first Samuel seven, first Samuel eight. Yeah. First Samuel eight, like, you start to see the collision yes. of like God is meant to be king, but the people are looking for a king. They're doing it maybe in a wrong way. Yeah. The motive is becomes yeah. the big, big deal is, here is the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're starting to see, Oh, they're actually like the expectation for a king mm-hmm. is actually planted it's, by yeah, God. Yes. It makes sense. Yes. But the, how they go about it yes. is funky. How they go about it. And the fact that what's always meant to be the case is that this King would be in sync with yeah. Yahweh himself. Genesis one. Genesis one, going back to that. And so what you then end up happening is essentially this collision, if you will, of the motivation and the desire of the people in first Samuel eight. And the fact that all throughout previously in the Torah and the old Testament, this desire and this need for a king. We also mentioned, you know, on Sunday, the lines in the book of Judges that there was no king in Israel and everyone was doing right in their own eyes. Clearly this need for a king to rule with justice and righteousness in the land. Can I fast forward a second? Yeah. Because what's interesting, like they have this longing for a king and then the person 
that they sort of choose is like this handsome, yes. big, yeah, yeah. it sort of has all the like, and then when you get to David, right, it's like they pass over the handsome it, and the yes. big and they take the runty yes. and it's sort of like, oh, there's a lot of these human expectations mm-hmm. about the, what the king should be like. For sure. And I think that's a, a really important observation to make is that as Israel is asking for a king, and Saul, by the way, his name means the one who's asked for, yeah. that they're presenting and having this idea of, okay, we actually know what a good king is supposed to yeah, be like. Because look and, at our neighbor. Yeah, look at our neighbor's king. And <laughs> that, he's powerful he and mighty, <laughs> and he has all the good looks, and he has the yeah. skills and the reputation. And they kind of bring that expectation. You kind of see it kind of in seedbed form here. Yeah. We want a king like the other nations. Yeah. And they project that now onto Saul. And Saul becomes, and he's described, we're going to get to this, he's handsome, he's tove, he's good. Yeah. You know, he's a head taller than yeah. you know everyone else everyone in else. Israel. Um, and it kind of, again, gets at this idea of Israel's king was meant to be distinct and different from all the other nations and how they ruled. Yeah. Not only in just like what he, he did as a king in practice, but who he was more importantly, yeah. I think, as in his character. Yeah. And this gets at a little bit, just real briefly, the Deuteronomy 17 passage that has essentially the guidelines or the, the qualifications, if you will, for Israel's kings. Yeah. And it's really interesting because, and I mentioned this on Sunday, but I just want to mention it here one more time, is that there's three things that Israel's kings are not supposed to be or do. Three W's to kind of help you remember this. They're not to have multiple wives, not to have a lot of weapons, and not to have a lot of wealth. And it's those three things that Israel's kings constantly do over and over, especially Solomon. Yeah, you highlighted. Like Solomon has all these wives. Mm -hmm. Solomon takes slaves. He becomes essentially Pharaoh. Totally. Oh yeah. He takes slaves to build all these sort of military yes. things and storehouses for grain. For and sure. He does all these things. It's yeah. crazy because you have in first Kings 11, it says that he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he's like, Dude, he yeah. totally just blew the first thing yeah. in Deuteronomy 17. Uh, he has in first Kings nine, these massive storehouses for his chariots and horsemen yeah. and everything that he wanted to build. He was able to build to house basically his military infrastructure. That's yeah. the second thing he wasn't yeah. supposed and to the do. Storehouses, right. That gets back to that's exactly what Israel was doing. They were building yes, storehouses in Egypt. For yes. Egypt for Pharaoh under Pharaoh. It's like, Oh, this feels like there's yes. an echo back now to exactly. Exodus that you've now become like a rival to God, like Pharaoh. And you've become the very thing that God delivered you from, yeah. and you've turned yourself into that evil. It's yeah. exactly what the Solomon story is yeah. getting at. And then the last thing, he accumulates massive wealth. He has 600 plus talents of gold, yeah. and it's just excessive the way that it's described in 1 Kings yeah. 10. You read it in 1 Kings, and you're like, why do I care? Why am I being told this? Because of Deuteronomy 17. Exactly, yeah. yes. And so what you have then is... Essentially, Solomon, and David has his flaws too, by the yeah, way, but Solomon, it's just like on full display where we're looking for this merging of a human and divine king to come. We have these expectation for it where Yahweh is the king. There's also this human expectation. Yeah. And it seems like Solomon, David's son, because if you look in context, David is given this promise in 2 Samuel 7 that his descendant hmm. would be the, the the one who God would establish blessing and shalom. Like, maybe, through it's all their, maybe it's Solomon. But yeah. you have this merging of the two, but he's like 0 for 3 on the three main things that he's not supposed mm-hmm. to do as king. And so it kind of keeps this, you know, prophetic hope kind of building where we're looking for, okay, where is this king to come? And again, it's, it seems pretty obvious at this point what we're you know yeah. pointing to uh, is Jesus. But what I, I would say though with this is that there's many ways that were that answer to the question of who is this king, this human king, it's Jesus. That's pretty obvious. I think yeah. many of us who are, you know, familiar with the church, the Bible, so on and so forth, we get that. But how the text leads us there, I think is really interesting. In Psalm 40, we have this kind of prophetic psalm talking about 
what the king is to delight in. Hmm. And the Psalm 40, verse 7 and following, 7 and 8, basically says this, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written for me. I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is written within my heart. Hmm. And it describes this king, this kingly figure, whose delight is in God's Torah and God's law, Hmm. which was the one primary thing in Deuteronomy 17 that Israel's king was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Yet essentially all of Israel's kings don't do that. Mm -hmm. They do the three things that they're not supposed to do. And then when you bring that into the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews is really tracking with this. Hmm. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of the Hebrews quotes Psalm 40 and applies it to Jesus Hmm. and says of Jesus, then I said, an exact quote from Psalm 40, Behold, I have come to do your will, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Again, talking about Jesus being the one who is delighting Hmm. in God's teaching, in God's instruction, essentially fulfilling the need that Deuteronomy 17 Hmm. portrays and that Israel's kings themselves failed to Hmm. accomplish and achieve. And so again, we, we understand, I think most of us that are probably listening to this, that Jesus fulfills that kind of merging, if you will, that was presented in Genesis 1 yeah. of a human image of God that would be a royal kind of authority and representative of God on earth that is kind of forfeited by the humans in Genesis 3. And then the need for that arises as the biblical text goes mm. on. Humans kind of want to achieve that, have that, desire this king in 1 Samuel 8 with wrong motives, projecting kind of how their neighbors and how their kings rule and act, yeah. and expecting those same expectations with the, the tall, handsome Saul and so on and so forth with all yeah. the physical appearances. But when it comes down to it, what ends up being the primary need is that mm. the king would be one who delights in God's teaching mm. and would submit himself to God's wow. instruction and authority. And that fully is accomplished cool. in the person of Jesus. Wow. So there's a lot it's there. It's cool to see the arc though, from like Genesis one and then the fall and then how the splitting happens mm-hmm. between their longing for a king, uh, but Yahweh's the king and sort of the betrayal, the yeah. failure that then sort of merges in the savior yes. who is also the king uh, who rescues. For sure. Totally. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yep. Yeah. That's good to see because I think sometimes we miss the narrative arc mm-hmm. and how these themes develop. And I yes. feel like you're helping tease that out for us. For sure. And I think it's important to see that as the New Testament writers, and I think one of the ways I think this is really important is that the New Testament writers are not simply just looking at Jesus and then going and proof texting all these Old Testament texts and going, you know, he's, he's the one we're just kind of twisting the old Testament to make sense of who we see Jesus is. They're reading their old Testament, expecting and seeing embedded within the narrative arc of the old Testament itself, this expectation that is inherent with the text itself. And that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Makes sense. Thanks, man. Yep. It's good.